Well, morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, please forgive the hat. Um, getting kind of COVID hair, so uh, thought I'd cover it up this morning while I'd start looking like Boris Johnson, and we wouldn't want that, would we? Anyway, it's uh, my privilege to share this morning and uh, looking at uh, or continuing in our series on heroes of faith and particularly looking at Gideon uh, this morning. I won't be reading the story, so if you do want to read it in your own time, then it's in the book of Judges, which is in our Old Testaments in the Bible, and it's chapters 6 to 8. So I won't be reading it, I will be referring to it, and by all means, in your own time, have a read. If you want a title for the message this morning, the title is Who's the Real Hero? Is it Gideon, or is there something else going on in this story? And I'm going to come at this story by dis- dividing the uh, narrative into five acts and walk through those acts before drawing a conclusion together. So um, hopefully you'll find this helpful and uh, hopefully inspiring and interesting. Scene one, Gideon emerges into a situation in which Israel is doing evil in the sight of God. They worship foreign gods, specifically a god called Baal, and at best, they worship Baal alongside the true God. At worst, they worship Baal instead of the true God. In many ways, they live in a spiritually pluralistic society, and we can probably relate to some of that in the days in which we live. Israel are being oppressed by the Midianites who raid their crops, impoverish the Israelites, And the Israelites spend their time hiding in the caves and the clefts of rock to be out their way so that they are safe. Their dire state causes them to cry out to God for help. And before God, or before Gideon emerges, God sends a prophet with no name, which actually is quite interesting. It's rare for that to happen in our Old Testaments. That itself is maybe a bit of a slur against where Israel are in relationship to God. But anyway, this prophet with no name rehearses something of the story of God and Israel. He tells them and reminds them how God has been faithful to them over many, many years. He reminds them how God has rescued them. They were once an oppressed people and he's given them a land. But how they constantly have turned their backs on God and walked away through idolatry. Following this description that contrasts God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness, we're introduced to Gideon. And so we enter again that cycle of Israel's rebellion and idolatry, their oppression, their crying out to God for help and his deliverance through a human agent. That cycle goes on and on through the book of Judges, but it's not not just a cycle on a level playing field. It's a spiral downwards in which the character even of the leaders is getting worse and the effectiveness of their action diminishes. Judges has been described as despicable people doing deplorable things and as trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. And I think there's a ring of truth in that. And I think it's true when we come to Gideon, as we'll see, who really is at the centre of this book of Judges. Scene two. We find Gideon hiding in a winepress, threshing wheat, probably hiding to avoid being seen or caught by the Midianites who have really taken most of the food that the Israelites need to live. And so he's in this winepress, hiding away here, 
when he has a visit from the angel of the Lord. At this stage, he probably doesn't really realise who it is visiting him, apart from him being an angel. But the angel speaks to him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. From that statement begins a debate in which Gideon's cynical questioning comes to the fore and we find he's not in much of a better place than the rest of the Israelite nation. Pardon me, my Lord, so the NIV puts it, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? We don't see all his wonders. He's abandoned us, Gideon says amidst other things. This isn't a person full of faith in God. This, uh, this moment isn't an example to follow. We might relate, <laughs> but it's not exactly something we desire to imitate. The angel actually doesn't answer Gideon, Gideon's question, but instead responds by calling and sending Gideon to rescue Israel from Midian. But Gideon responds cynically again. Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? He goes on with his excuses of, I'm from the weakest clan and I'm the least in my family. How on earth can I be the one to save Israel? Again, we can probably relate to excuses that we hold up before God when God wants us to respond or act in some way. But again, it's not something we should aspire to albeit we can perhaps relate. The Lord this time assures Gideon of his presence, saying, I will be with you, and assures him of future success. But even that isn't enough for Gideon. He wants a sign. How patient is God? If I were God, I think I'd have lost patience long ago. But somehow we see something of God's patience, his mercy, his enduring loving kindness towards people that he continues on and in some ways humours Gideon. So the sign involves Gideon preparing a meal of meat, of bread and broth and brings it back to the angel who touches it with his staff and mm, in some ways barbecues it in his sight. It reminds me of a Star Wars scene with the staff coming out and this thing being obliterated. It's this divine barbecue, this instantaneous barbecue that's going on. Quite a humorous moment, I think, in the story. And this barbecue convinces Gideon that he is in the presence of the angel of the Lord. But now, because he realises he's seen the angel of the Lord face to face, he fears for his life, despite the fact that God has said, I'm going to send you and you're going to have a victory and you're going to rescue my people. Now he fears for his life. The Lord speaks to him and gives him peace and assures him that he won't die. And Gideon, at last, in some semblance of faith, builds an altar to God. So, so far, let me recap. We've had angelic appearances, affirmation that God is with him. We've had him being sent with victory assured. Finally, we've had a sign of this divine barbecue. It takes all that to get Gideon to some sense of faith. Now, listen, maybe we're like that. Maybe it takes God a lot of work at times to get us to peace and faith. Probably I'm like that. 
But Lord, help me respond more positively. Now that God has got Gideon on side, he instructs Gideon to tear down his father's altar to Baal and to sacrifice a bull on it. Gideon obeys, but actually we now see again that Gideon does it at night because he's still governed by fear. He still hasn't got to that place of real faith and real trust in God. He takes the the altar down at night. But in the morning when the townspeople come together, they find out that it's Gideon who's done this and Gideon's life is threatened. His father steps in, which is a little bit ironic, seeing as it was his father's altar. And he protects Gideon by saying, well, if Baal is really God, then surely Baal can contend for himself. And the people accept his his uh, his stepping in, accept what he says. And Gideon is renamed Jerob Baal, meaning let Baal contend with him. This name becomes a bit of a mixed blessing for Gideon and for the people, as we see Gideon fluctuating between faith in the true God and fear before the enemy of Baal worshippers. Scene three, the gathering of the Amalekites, the Midianites and others as they prepare to ransack Israel again. Here, the Spirit of God clothes Gideon and he calls people together. But again, we see his fear and his uncertainty come to the fore. Instead of believing God, he wants more signs. And so we get the sign of the fleece where Gideon says, I'm going to put a fleece out overnight and in the morning I want the fleece to be sopping wet and the ground around to be dry. God, in his patience and forbearance, obliges. But then Gideon asks for the opposite sign. He's not satisfied with this. He says, Lord, let the ground be wet and the fleece dry the next day. And God obliges again. This then leads into the conversation that God has with Gideon about the size of his battle force. And God says that all the fearful in the army need to go home. This reduces Gideon's force from 32,000 to 10,000. But God again wants to thin it even further so that Gideon realises this battle will be won by God's prowess, by God's uh, ability and power, not by Gideon. And so he shrinks the force even further, finally leaving only 300 men. But what's really interesting is that whereas the fearful have been sent home, Gideon himself remains fearful. And so God <laughs> steps on a, a, another level again and says, Gideon, if you're fearful, go down to the enemy's camp and listen in to what they have to say. And so Gideon goes down with one of his uh, uh, associates and overhears the telling of a dream that's been had in the Midianite camp. And in this dream, the Midianites interpret it as meaning that God will give them into Gideon's hands. As Gideon overhears this dream, at last he gets some courage, bows down, worships and believes God. What's ironic here is that he's had more faith in the dream of the enemy than in that of the Lord's promise. Which was given him way back when he first encountered the angel of the Lord in the winepress. Israel 
and we are looking for a hero of faith so often. Is this really the hero of faith that we want? It was only because God kind of thrust his spirit on him that he even kind of rose up and called the armies together. And it was only because God had so much endurance and mercy and grace and loving kindness to respond time and time and time again to Gideon's requests that Gideon finally ends up in that place of faith. Thank God that we have his spirit dwelling within us who can encourage us, who can uh, draw faith from us. Thank God that his spirit has been poured out upon us in our day. God wanted Gideon to take him at his word, to worship him only. Yet Gideon seems to fluctuate between some semblance of faith and fear of the enemy. And yet we see God's commitment to his plans, to Israel, to Gideon, to seeing his purposes come about. This is a story that shows us God's long-suffering, his mercy, his sovereignty, despite the flaws in Gideon and the the flipping this way and that way that goes on with Gideon and the people of Israel. So we can take hope because, yes, let's be honest, we all have flaws and we don't always get it first time. Scene four, Gideon now leads the Israelites in a great victory. It must be this victory that somehow gives rise to the author of the letter of Hebrews, which is in our New Testament, in which Gideon is listed as one who conquered kingdoms by faith. That must be, it must be this victory that gets him in that kind of hall of fame list, if you like. But even this victory, as you read the narrative, is filled with excess. Some of it is done in response to taunting that Gideon encounters during the battle. But whereas when he was had his life threatened by the townspeople for demolishing his father's Baal altar. His father protects him through diplomacy. And whereas when people are, are kind of taunting Gideon, he himself protects himself through diplomacy and words. Now when he's kind of in charge, he goes back and he ends up killing and tearing down and contending with them in a fairly vicious way. There's excess even in this victory. Nevertheless, the victory is won and his reluctant obedience has freed the Israelites. Scene five, Gideon is asked to be their ruler, but he refuses. On one level, we could see this as a pious response. No, I don't want to be your ruler. God is your ruler. But on another, it seems that he wants the trappings of rulership without its responsibility. What does he do? He asks for them to give them to give him some of the plunder from which he makes an ephod. What should this ephod have been used for? Could have been used in the worship of the true God, but actually what happens, it itself becomes worshipped as an idol. He also ends up with a harem. He has 70 sons and he has a son from his concubine who isn't a, a great piece of work if you read on in the narrative. It seems like he wants pleasure, not governance. There is peace in his lifetime, but as soon as he dies, Baal worship is back, which probably isn't surprising seeing as they've been worshipping this ephod even whilst he was alive. And it seems like the redemptive effects of his efforts are not 
great. So we have a mixed character in Gideon. I guess a bit like all of us, certainly like me. But we don't hold it up to be copied or imitated, certainly not in his entirety. Judges, the book, ends with these words about everybody doing as they saw fit in their own eyes. And this is what we see in the Gideon story, a constant flitting between obedience to God and following the idols of the nations, between faith in God and trust in God and fear and anxiety. The story gives us hope that God in his faithfulness and grace continues to use flawed characters like you, like me, and that God still will outwork his plans. But the writer would prefer we responded as people of faith and worship. If we're looking for heroes, then we need to look to God in this story. And this story and this book of Judges is all about God and him being the hero of the narrative. The characters are flawed and flit this way and that, but God is faithful. God goes above and beyond. God shows enduring love and mercy. God is sovereign and his plans will be worked out. And this book in Judges points us ultimately to the one who will come, who will be a saviour to us, who will be a hero, whose life will not flit this way and that way, who will be always good and always righteous and always full of justice, whose character cannot be flawed. This one finally comes in the person of Jesus Christ and it's him whose family we have been brought into and it's his spirit that has been poured out on us that enables us to be transformed, that enables us to grow in faith, that enables us to have trust in God through whatever we walk in. That's the one that ultimately we need to look to who will judge and will be ruler but is fully loving and fully consistent and is our true hero. Human heroes are not the way to go. We might see aspects of a person's character that we aspire to. We might appreciate different things that people do. But we all know that we as human beings are flawed. We all know that we struggle at times with faith and not faith. We all know that there are times when we get attracted by worshipping someone or something other than God. But thank God he doesn't ditch us when we fail but he calls us higher. As we continue to walk through COVID, I see renewal happening in the body of Christ. I see renewal in us of a desire to seek God and pray. I see renewal in the body of Christ functioning and caring and reaching out to one another. I see renewal in boldness and witness. I receive renewal in a desire to connect as we are relational beings. God is not wasting this crisis. As tragic as it is and as evil and horrific as it is, God in it is looking for renewal and revival amongst his people. And let us not waste this crisis too. Let's pour our attention upon the true hero and allow him to draw faith and hope and worship from us. And let's consider if we, like Israel, need to deal with idols, need to change our mind about what or who is truth and need to learn to follow more faithfully. God bless you.